Indy was beginning to get very tired of sitting by her supervisor at a desk, and of having nothing to do. Once or twice, she peeped into the project her supervisor was marking. But it had no galaxies or complex mathematics in it. And what is the use of a book without galaxies or complex mathematics? Oh, maybe I should plot some data or something. Wait a minute, what's that? Oh, oh my ears and whiskers, how late it's getting. A white rabbit? How very curious. Hold on, that's an audio recorder in its pocket. It must be going to do an interview. Burning with curiosity, Indy ran down the corridors after it. Unfortunately, it was just in time to see it pop down the large black hole behind the coffee machine. In another moment, down went Indy after it, never once considering how in the world she was going to get out again. She fell for what seemed like an age, before finding herself in a large hall filled with doors. Oh dear, it's late! Late! Excuse me? Oh, take it! Please, take the interview! It'll be late! Late! And with that, the rabbit ran off in a very great hurry. Indy turned around and started walking in the direction it had indicated. Looking for something? Who said that? Who said what? Who's there? Who's where? Oh, this must be what a vibe is like. Pretty much. I've had mine. There you are. Are you a princess? I thought we'd got past this. Ah, no. You're a cat. And from your accent, Cheshire? Quite right. But I see you have a Jodcast interview to edit, and the producer won't be happy that it's so late. Oh, that's what the rabbit must have been talking about. But how do I get it edited up? Oh, that's easy. Take it to Mad Adam. Mad? I don't think I want to go among mad people. Or you could take it to the Mark Hare, but he's mad too. I'm mad, you're mad. But how do you know I'm mad? Simple. You wouldn't be here. If you weren't. Oh dear, this is going to be very late, isn't it? There I can help. I'll play this edition of the show, and you can find your way to the tea room. There's a tea room? Of course. But watch out for the inhabitants. Mad, you know. And so off Indy went, the character in search of the editor. Will the show get done? Will Indy just go mad? What will happen when we meet Mad Adam and the Mark Hare? Find out. After this. The Jodcast, tumbling down the black hole with Dave Alt, Adam Avenson, George Bendo, Leo Huckvale, Libby Jones, Indy LeClerc, Ian McDonald, Tim O'Brien, Mark Berver, and Christina Smith. The Jodcast, December 2013, Extra Edition. Hello, and welcome to the Jodcast. I'm George, and joining me in the studio today are Christina and Leo. Hello. Hi. In this show, we talk to Dr. Jonathan Pritchard about exploring the dawn of cosmic structure with the 21 Samir line, and Professor Tim O'Brien answers your astronomical questions. But before all of that, Indy talks to Dr. Mike Keith in this month's Jodbite. Joining us today in the Jodcast studio is Dr. Michael Keith. Hi, Dr. Keith. Hello. Dr. Keith is a recent arrival to JBCA, having come all the way from uh, the far reaches of Australia, and uh, he's now working in the Pulsar Group here at JBCA, which most of our listeners know is one of the big areas of research um, here at Jodl Bank. So tell us a bit about yourself and what you were doing before you came to Jodl Bank. 
Okay, so before I started here at Jodrell Bank, I was working for the CSRO in Australia, which is one of the uh, Australia's biggest uh, research organizations, and I was uh, working there with the Parkes Radio Telescope, which is another telescope similar to the one we have here at Jodrell, but uh, in the middle of nowhere in Australia instead of in the middle of Cheshire in England. Pretty isolated either way, I think. <laughs> yeah, sheep all around. And um, so... What, uh, what aspect of, uh, of pulsars are you focusing on in your research? So, I, I mean, I focus on two things, uh, one of which is looking for new pulsars, which is a cool thing if you like pulsars, but I'm also looking at uh, using them for detecting gravitational waves, which is one of the really hot topics for astronomers these days. So a common thread uh, between Parks and Jodrell Bank, actually, is that they're both single-dish telescopes, and a lot of new telescopes up and coming are... Um, tend to be arrays nowadays, but why do pulsar astronomers still prefer single-dish telescopes? Well, in principle, it's because the pulsars are very weak objects, and we need a, a lot of uh, collecting area. So a big dish like the Lovell gives us uh, all the gain we need to, to detect these weak objects. And for the most part, we don't need the, the imaging capabilities that the, the multi-dish telescopes give you. I see. So are you continuing the work that you did at Parks uh, here at Jodrell Bank? And in fact, are you using Jodrell Bank itself? Or are you, have you started work on something completely different? So, well, even when I was working at Parks, I still um, was working with the people here at uh, Jodrell. And we, for instance, when we did our big survey at Parks to look for pulsars, um, we don't get as much time with Parks as we can get here with the Lovell. So the pulsars that we discover typically time here at Jodrell because we get a lot more uh, observing time here and we can time them more regularly. And with pulsars, you really need to observe them every week or something in order to, to track their rotation over the year. Okay. So you discover pulsars, then you have to time them. And how does that relate at all to, to these gravitational waves? First of all, could you explain what gravitational waves are and why, why they're interesting? And because um, I'm not sure most of our listeners will be that familiar with them and then why it's good to use pulsars to actually uh, detect these things. So most of the astronomy we do is with electromagnetic radiation. So either radio waves like we do here at Jodrell, or in optical like you might do with a telescope at home. Um, but there's another uh, radiation predicted by Einstein's general relativity, which is gravitational wave radiation. And these are effectively small ripples in space-time that travel out from... Uh, massive objects, so that's heavy objects, uh, and could in principle be detected here on Earth. Unfortunately, those signals are very weak, so we need we need either a very sensitive instrument or we need a very long distance over which to measure them. And because pulsars are a long way away, we can measure the space-time ripples passing over the pulsars, and so we can try and detect this. But as I said, it is an incredibly weak signal, and so We've not yet been able to make this detection, but we're getting closer and closer every day. But in that case, would you need the pulsar to be close to another massive object, or do the, does the pulsar itself give off the waves? How does it work exactly? So the waves that we detect mostly come from, in fact, distant galaxies, uh, and it's the supermassive black holes that sit at the centers of these distant galaxies, and they emit the gravitational wave radiation. And it, as it passes over our galaxy we see the effect in all the pulsars that we observe that are throughout our galaxy. So does it cause a little sort of 
bump in the signal or some sort of delay. So what we see is we see all the pulsars changing together. So if all the pulsar signals change together, we know that either either there's something wrong with our system, which we can we can check, or we know that there's something going on that is affecting the whole galaxy basically. And and this is the gravitational waves radiation. Nice. So what happens when you finally detect a gravitational wave? I mean, this is so this is a test of general of Einstein's general relativity, isn't it? Well, we we know that um these gravitational waves exist from observations of binary pulsars and we can we've seen the 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 orbit of the binary shrinking due to the gravitational wave energy coming out. So we do know they exist, we've just never directly observed them. If we can observe the gravitational waves, we can find out about black holes in the centers of distant galaxies that we can't see otherwise. And this tells us things about how galaxies are formed and how black holes are put together. And, you know, we really don't know a lot about where black holes come from. That's true, that's true. And um, I guess it'll just open a whole new domain of astronomy, basically, gravitational wave astronomy, extending it even past the electromagnetic spectrum. (laughs) Yeah, so it's very similar to how... Um, in the early 20th century, radio astronomy came came about and we started building radio telescopes and we learned a whole lot of new stuff about the universe. If we can open the gravitational wave window and combine that with our uh, optical and radio and infrared, you know, we'll, we'll have a, another whole new explosion in understanding of the way the universe works. That's brilliant, that's brilliant. So the search for gravitational waves goes on and you mentioned also detecting new pulsars. Um, so we've astronomers have found what something in like the thousands, tens of thousand pulsars already. Uh, so we know two thousand pulsars at the moment. It seems like a lot, but pulsars are very weird objects, and there's they have many different behaviors. And so only by getting lots of pulsars can we really work out, you know, what what makes pulsars tick because they they each seem to be doing slightly different things. So it's it's a real challenge. But the other thing is, is that not all of these pulsars are useful for the for the very uh, important experiments like the gravitational wave experiment. So only a, only say ten or twenty pulsars that we know of so far are really useful for this, and we need to find more of them to to increase our sensitivity to gravitational waves and to go from the sort of just maybe detecting it to actually doing really exciting science. Um, as I was saying, like understanding how black holes are formed, we want to find more of these pulsars to really drive this. So just finding a pulsar in in itself isn't isn't that exciting of an event anymore, I guess, for you? Or... Uh, it's still pretty exciting. I mean, it's seeing something that nobody's ever seen before and finding new things. And, and every pulsar could be really exciting. Like I was saying, you know, Lots of these pulsars have very unique properties, and so when you when you see something, uh, you don't know if that's going to be the one that's doing something really exotic and really exciting, and 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 makes you excited, you know, gives you something to do for the next year or something. Yeah, sure, because like I guess that's what you were saying that once you find a pulsar, you still have to time it and, and look at it for a while before you can get all its characteristics out. So, bringing me to my next question. What specifically are you looking for in terms of what you call an interesting pulsar, one that can help you um, detect gravitational waves? What sets them apart? So the pulsars that are really good for the gravitational wave experiment are the fastest millisecond pulsars. So these are pulsars that spin 
spin round maybe five or seven hundred times in a second. So this is, uh, you know, an object that's as heavy as the sun, it's the size of a city like Manchester, and it's spinning around faster than your kitchen blender. So it's, it's a, you know, it's, this is a seriously extreme environment. But it's nice. this, it's this very rapid rotation that makes them useful for this experiment because we can get the highest precision of the arrival times of the signal. So you're saying you only have 10 or 20 of those. Um, so what are the experiments that you have ongoing to, to detect millisecond pulsars? So, I mean, the experiment that I'm most closely involved with is with the Parkes Radio Telescope. And this is the High Time Resolution Universe Survey, um, where we're surveying the entire southern sky for looking essentially for these millisecond pulsars. And uh, so in the Parkes Survey, I, I believe that uh, you and your collaborators found uh, an object that got quite a bit of media interest, actually. So could you tell us a bit about that? So I suspect this is your the uh, diamond planet you're referring to. Yep. Um, so this was a, a pulsar we discovered a few years ago now. And when we were observing it here at Jodrell, we noticed that it, its arrival time seemed to vary with a, a 12-hour periodicity. And when we looked into this, we discovered that it, it seemed to have a planetary mass companion, so something that had the same mass about as Jupiter. Um, going around it, but it, if you, if you do the the physics, you can see that this this planet must be much closer to the pulsar than Jupiter would fit, and so it must be a very dense object. And because we understand how the pulsar has formed, we know that this this planet must have once been a star. And uh, it's it's a really extraordinary thing because the the star would have had about the same mass as the sun, and it's gone down to something that's a thousandth of that mass. So it's lost something like 99.99% of its mass and left just this very little core, which we understand is is made of carbon and is in this crystal structure, and so we think of it as a, as a diamond. So it's this, it's this very exotic system where you had a star once, it's been blasted by this pulsar, turned into a a planet-like thing, which is made of pure carbon and and looks like a big diamond. That is seriously cool. Many surprises yet to come, I think. Yeah, I agree. So one last aspect of your research, and which I think is equally as cool as diamond planets, um, is the so-called fast radio bursts. So I'm not going to talk about this. I'm going to let you describe what 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 it is we're on about exactly. Yeah. Okay. So these were these are bursts that we saw at Parks, where we got a single event coming from the sky that lasted for about a millisecond, but it was very bright and coming from a bit of sky that we didn't think there was anything in. And it seemed to be coming from a very long way away, um, so well outside of our galaxy. And this puzzled astronomers for a long time because we only saw the one event. But recently, uh, myself and collaborators here and in Australia uh, discovered four more of these events. And so we now know that these really are, firstly, coming from a really long way away, so at, at cosmological distances. The furthest one is back to the half the age of the universe. And they're, they're very, very bright, and it turns out that there's a really lot of them happening all the time, but it's just because our telescopes can only see a small part of the sky at once, and they only last for a millisecond, that we don't see very many. In fact, we think there's something like uh, 10,000 over the whole sky coming per day. Oh, wow. So it's just difficult to spot them because they happen so quickly in like little flashes, I guess, of radio. 
Yeah, so if you had radio eyes, you would see these flashes going on all over the sky all the time. I think um, Dan Thornton, who used to produce Dodcasts, was involved in uh, in a lot of the fast uh, fast radio burst research. So, shout out to Dan. <laughs> and um, well, that's been really fascinating chatting with you, Dr. Keith. And um, thanks for joining us today. No problem. Thank you. Thanks for that, Andy. Now we have Mark talking to Dr. Jonathan Pritchard about exploring the dawn of cosmic structure with the 21 Samir line. I'm interviewing Dr. Jonathan Pritchard from Imperial College London, who's been giving a colloquium here at Jodrell Bank Centre for Astrophysics about observing the early universe at a wavelength of 21 centimetres. So welcome. Thank you for being interviewed. Thank you for having me. So your talk was all about the history of the universe and the bits we don't know. So maybe you could start off by giving us a very potted history of the universe. I can certainly do my best. So, I mean, in many ways, the history of the universe, as we understand it, begins with something of a question mark with the the Big Bang. We don't understand that initial moment in time, but we do have a very good idea of what went on from a fraction of a second after that through to the present day. We haven't seen all of that, but we think we know what's going on. So initially, there was a universe was very hot and dense, and as time went by, it expanded, it cooled, uh, it became less dense. And within that, there were small variations from place to place of how much stuff there was, how much matter. And the action of gravity meant that where there was more stuff, it attracted yet more stuff. And so those over-dense regions got bigger and bigger until eventually they collapsed and started to form galaxies, stars, all of the stuff that we see around us that produce light. Before there were galaxies, the universe was dark, and we like to talk about the cosmic dark ages. Um, And recently we've started to talk about the cosmic dawn, that moment when the first starlight was produced. So those are regions that we haven't seen yet. And then later, the light from those galaxies start to carve bubbles in the hydrogen gas that surround them. We call this reionization because the gas is being ionized, the hydrogen, the protons and the electrons are being torn apart. And really the point where we start to see things is after that process of reionization is completed. You've probably seen the beautiful pictures of the Hubble Space Telescope. If you look really deep into there, you're seeing galaxies that are billions of light years away from us. But the furthest galaxies that we see We're seeing their light from a time about a billion years after the Big Bang. And we think that the first galaxies formed as early as 100 million years after the Big Bang. So there's a big window of time that we think we know what's going on. But until we see stuff, it's hard to be sure. And that's the period you're probing. And so that's the period that I'm I'm most excited about, yeah. So I should probably mention it's, it's after the period where we see the cosmic microwave background, but then before the period where we can actually observe many galaxies at the moment. That's exactly right. The cosmic microwave background is about 400,000 years after the Big Bang. If by way of a metaphor you want to try and map that onto the age of a person, if today is a person in their 50s or so, they're you know still sort of in their prime, maybe starting to go downhill a little bit... <laughs> The cosmic microwave background is a picture about one day old. So it's like a, an infant photo. And the period that we're studying is maybe the terrible twos. You know, the right. galaxies are throwing photons all over the place in some tantrum of activity. <laughs> There's a period when an awful lot happens, even though it might not be 
that much of the universe's history, I guess. It is. Because it's the moment when the first stars and galaxies form, it's also the time when the first metals get formed. So the Big Bang produces just hydrogen, helium, a little bit of lithium, but all of the carbon and oxygen, the iron, that has to be produced in stars. And so we think that there was a first generation of stars that formed just from hydrogen and helium. There were no metals in them. And they may have been much larger than our sun. In some models, they're hundreds of times the mass of a sun like ours. And they burn very, very brightly. It's a cliche. They live fast and they die young. Mm -hmm. So they only burn for maybe a million years before exploding and throwing all of the metals that they've produced outwards. And so then subsequent generations of stars, they start off with metals. And so they start to look much more like the sun and other stars that we see today. So obviously observing these things, they happen a long time ago, they're very far away, so the radiation that we might pick up with telescopes is going to be very weak. And at the beginning I said that your talk was about observing at a wavelength of 21 centimetres, but I was simplifying it a little bit, so can you tell us about how you would observe this sort of early childhood of the, the universe? So the challenge is that if we look for individual galaxies, the light from those is very faint, and so we need to look for something else. And what people have been trying to do now is to look for a radio signal from hydrogen gas. So the universe is filled with hydrogen gas. So even if the signal from a little bit of hydrogen is small, there's so much of it that there's something that you can try to, to look for. And it turns out that hydrogen can emit light with a wavelength of 21 centimeters. That's when we talk about the 21 centimeter signal. If you think about the proton and the electron in a hydrogen atom, as being like little magnets. If you've ever played with magnets, you know they tend to try and align north to south. So that's a low energy state. But if you put work in, you can twist them so that they're aligned north to north. So this 21 centimeter wavelength light gets produced when essentially those magnets flip from right. one orientation to the other. So that's what we're trying to look for. And that 21 centimeter light gets stretched as the universe expands. Until today, we're looking at something that's about two meters in wavelength. Right. So it's very people-sized <laughs> scales. Two meters also corresponds to a radio frequency of about 100 megahertz. So every time you tune into your radio, you're contributing to making our life harder. <laughs> so, so stop. Yeah, so that's, that's the idea. And we're very lucky that looking at different frequencies maps to looking at different distances away from us. So if we look at different positions on the sky, so as angle, and then also at different frequencies, we hope to map the universe in three dimensions. And what we're looking for will probably look a little like Swiss cheese. Right. Um, so the cheese is the hydrogen gas that's neutral, and the holes are the ionized hydrogen gas near to where galaxies are. So in a sense, in each of those holes, there'll be a galaxy. And how large the hole is tells you how bright the galaxy or handful of galaxies inside the bubble is. How many holes there are tells you something about how many galaxies there are. And if we're really lucky, we'll see that change over with time, with distance away from us. So that initially you just have one or two very small holes around the first galaxies, and then the holes will get bigger and more numerous until there's no more cheese. Right, okay. So you are interested in looking at how all this this stuff is distributed on the sky, and those patches of Swiss cheese you're talking about are actual physical patches on the sky. Yeah, that, that's it. 
And so you talked about different distributions of the radiation. We can talk in general terms, but you mentioned a couple of things, which was that you could find a distribution that you talked about as being global or one that was local. And then you also talked about an inside-out model and an outside-in model. So what do those things mean? Yeah, so the sort of picture that I just described of you know Swiss cheese with the galaxies at the centre of the holes is the most likely picture for how galaxies and their light interact with the gas that surrounds them. But we haven't seen anything from this period yet, and so you can imagine some some different ways in which things might work. So the process of ionizing the gas is a balance between two processes. You need light, which ionizes, but you can also have recombinations. So you can have protons and electrons that come back together and regenerate neutral hydrogen. And it's a race. If there are more recombinations, you'll have neutral gas. If there are more ionizations, you'll have ionized gas. So the Swiss cheese picture, we talk about it being a an inside-out model. So where there's more stuff, that's where the galaxies live. And so you get more ionizations, so you carve out a hole. And if the ionizations win out over the recombinations, that's the picture. If instead the light can travel a long distance, and where you've got more stuff, you tend to have more recombinations, then you might get an outside-in picture where it's the underdense regions far away from the sources that get ionized first, and only later do the regions where the actual sources are get ionized. So in a sense, these are what I was describing were some toy models to try and get a better feel for the statistics of what this signal might look like. It's a challenge just to detect the signal, and so before we have super precise measurements, you need to look at statistical things, and that means you need to make sure you understand the statistics. Yeah. And so looking at these outside-in, inside-out, the global and the local is looking at uh, are the bubbles very small around individual galaxies, or are they quite big around groups of galaxies? So these are sort of four different combinations that you can look at the statistics and try to work out what you might see. Well, that brings me on to the next question. So I was going to say this signal is so hard to detect, and obviously there'll be lots of other things in the way. As you mentioned, one of them might be FM radio, but there could be all sorts of things. So how can the instruments that are coming or that are here now hope to pick the signal up? Yeah, so it's a real challenge. The signal is small. You can break down the things that get in the way into things that we produce, so radio interference, the sort of radios, and that's not actually too big a problem, it turns out, because our radios aren't always on, our mobile phones, you know, they make signals, but it's on, then it's off for a long period, then it's on again. And so if your radio telescope is looking at the sky all the time, you can look in the quiet patches, right? throw away the rest of the data. So you'd be adding up for a long, long time on the real signal. Yeah, yeah. And so so you can even put a radio telescope in the middle of the Netherlands. This is a LOFAR telescope, and only about 2% of the time is lost to the cell phones, the digital TV, all of this. That you can deal with. So then you've got interference that comes from, from space. So our galaxy is a source of radio emission. You've got electrons spiraling in magnetic fields, putting out synchrotron radiation that's at the same wavelengths that we want to look at. And so there the challenge is larger. The amplitude, the size of that radio emission is about 100 to 1,000 times larger than the signal that you're looking for. If you look 
at lots of different frequencies. You've got quite a lot of information about what the signal's doing, and you know what the foregrounds might be doing. Mm -hmm. So we think that the foregrounds are quite smooth with frequency, whereas the signal is rapidly changing. And so what do you do? You try to remove that smooth thing, and hopefully you'll get left with that very quickly changing thing. And you have an idea of, as you were showing before, the sort of pattern that that might make against frequency, or we could say against cosmic time. And it had a couple of peaks, a couple of troughs in it, so presumably you'd be looking for a pattern that was like that. Yeah, as a first attempt at things, you'd be looking for this sort of rise and fall in the signal as a result of physics that we think we understand. If you're lucky, you'd also see features like the bubbles looking in the frequency direction. And you also talked about the cosmic microwave background itself as being something like a backlight mm. to what you were looking for. So what did you mean by that? Yeah, so there are two ways that you can see gas, I suppose. If that gas is glowing, then you can see that emission. But very often you need to look and see that that gas is absorbing something behind it. So in this case, the cosmic microwave background is a source of bright emission. You know, we call it the cosmic microwave background, but there's also radio wave frequencies in there. It's a, it's a broad spread, and it's all over the sky. So it's like radio waves coming at us from all directions. So what we can look for is the absorption of the hydrogen gas against that bright background and look for a slight decrease in the signal. Or if the gas has become hot, then it might be brighter than the cosmic microwave background, and you'll see something that looks bright. And so what we're tend to look for is the difference between the signal and the reference cosmic microwave background. And does that mean that the people who've been measuring the cosmic microwave background have not been using those very low frequencies or they haven't been able to presumably currently see the imprint that you're looking for? They look at very different frequencies. So the peak of the cosmic microwave background, which is the place you want to try and observe it, is it more like 10 gigahertz? I think, 10 to 100 gigahertz. And so the 21 centimeter signal that we're looking for is more 200 megahertz. So you're looking in a very different regime. And so the sort of instruments that you need to try and detect it are quite different from the cosmic microwave background. But presumably because they remove foregrounds as well, that's a big part of that. You can use their sorts of techniques... Absolutely. So a lot of the work in this area of 21 centimeter cosmology has drawn upon the same statistical techniques that the cosmic microwave background has pioneered. And the cosmic microwave background has told us a lot of information about the foregrounds. So the same radio emission from our galaxy, that does stretch from these low frequencies up to the very high frequencies. And the CMB people have got very good at removing those foregrounds to look at cosmic microwave background. So that's all useful information that we try to feed in to work out how to get at that signal. And we've heard a lot about the cosmic microwave background in, I guess, the last few years and few months with the measurements made by Planck. So in the future, let's say in 10 years, do you think that we might be hearing about the 21 centimetre background or the hydrogen background? I certainly hope so. <laughs> so, I mean, one way to think about this is that the cosmic microwave background is like a thin shell in space. Whereas the 21 centimeter signal is like thousands of those shells. So there's, there's a lot more information. It's about a slightly different thing, but, but a lot more information. And the next 10 years is going to be really exciting for this field. So 
you should fess up that nobody's actually detected the 21 centimeter signal from cosmological distances. We've seen it from gas in our galaxy. It's one of the key ways that we look at nearby galaxies to see how they rotate. But if you start talking about cosmological distances, it's only in the last handful of years that we've been able to build radio telescopes that are big enough and sensitive enough to have a chance of detecting this, this signal. Um, these are telescopes that really are driven by computing power. The amount of data that they produce is huge. <laughs> and at the center of each of them sits a supercomputer to process the, the signals coming from hundreds or eventually millions of individual radio antenna. So it's a very, very exciting time. One of the things that I work on is the square kilometer array, and that we hope will be mostly up and running in about 2020. Within a few years of that, we hope to have sensitivity to make beautiful pictures of this 21 centimeter signal. But in the next couple of years, there are experiments in the Netherlands, LOFAR, in Australia, the Murchison Widefield Array, in South Africa, an experiment called PAPER, that are all in competition with one another to try and be the first to detect this signal. So it's, it's great. Fantastic. <laughs> and then as a very last thing, I was very interested when you said it might be nice to have a telescope on the far side of the moon to do this. <laughs> and um, I was wondering, it, is that partly because it's very radio quiet there? Or would you be interested in probing lower frequencies that don't get through our atmosphere as well? Exactly both of those things. So the first one, yeah, if, you, if you're sitting on the far side of the moon looking up, you don't have to worry about mankind polluting a sky with radio signals and all of that. So that's, that's a good advantage. But the absolutely critical thing is to be able to go down to lower frequencies. Um, so if you think about FM radio going down to shortwave radio, at shortwave radio you start to pick up signals from the other side of the world as uh, the signals bounce off the Earth's ionosphere. And so if you're an astronomer and you're trying to look up through something that is reflecting your signals back down, that's not a good thing. Yes. So, so as you go to frequencies much below 50 megahertz or so, you really need to be outside of the atmosphere on the far side of the moon. Even at frequencies, you know, 100 megahertz down to 50 megahertz, the ionosphere is a huge problem. One of my colleagues once described this game as being like trying to do astronomy from the bottom of a swimming pool. <laughs> and so the Earth's ionosphere is causing your sources to swim about on the sky. And you have to understand that and constantly calibrate for what the sky is doing in order to keep your, your signal still. And it's, it's funny. Um, so in the US, uh, when George Bush was talking about going back to the moon, there were a lot of clever ideas for how you might build a radio telescope on the far side of the moon. A radio telescope of this sort, it's basically just wires stretched out, plugged into a supercomputer. So it's not like a huge metal dish or anything like that necessarily? No. No, and that, that means that you can actually think about deploying something like that. So one of the ideas was to print uh, wire crosses onto like a plastic sheet. Those crosses are your dipole, you know, and so you'd have a, a moon lander. It would drop down, would unroll these plastic sheets, plug it in, and you're away. Instant mm. radio telescope. I had some colleagues in the US who, for a, a school project, got some high school kids to develop a little rover device to unroll these plastic sheets. They were very environmentally conscious, so they went beyond the specs and designed it so they could roll it back up again. <laughs> <laughs> well, that would be that would be really exciting. I just hope that if that happens, 
the telescopes get there before people who want radio stations, say, in moon bases get there. But thank you very much. That's very interesting insight into the early universe. Thank you. Yeah, thanks for having me. Pleasure. Thanks for that, Mark. Now we come to the part of the show where we fit in all those other things we can't fit in anywhere else, the odds and ends. And I'll begin today with a discussion of uh, uh, recent results from uh, the European Space Agency and their search for the next large-class missions or L-class missions that they will be funding. They made an announcement at the end of uh, November that they will be supporting a X-ray observatory, which will be launched in 2028, and a gravitational wave uh, observatory, which will be launched in 2034. Now, uh, I was personally involved with the uh, proposals for a couple of infrared telescopes, and I'm a little bit disappointed that uh, neither of those uh, got funding, although one of them got very close. But both these uh, missions uh, sound very interesting. The... Uh, X-ray mission, which will be launched in 2028, and will be uh, ESA's next X-ray mission since XMM Newton was launched into space in the last decade. Uh, so uh, there will be a considerable time gap between X-ray missions. And so you can imagine that there have been a lot of advances in X-ray uh, detector technology and X-ray telescope design that are going to be applied to this next generation uh, X-ray telescope. Two things that they're particularly interested in looking at is the formation of clusters of galaxies. Uh, clusters of galaxies um, not only contain the galaxies themselves, but also contain a lot of very hot gas, which produces a lot of X-ray emission. And uh, we know that if we look at objects uh, further away from the Earth, which are uh, at a point in time when the universe was younger, we can actually see a lot of these clusters forming. So being able to build X-ray telescopes to study these, uh, the formation of these clusters more carefully will be really exciting. The other thing is looking at X-ray emission from regions around black holes. These can include active galactic nuclei, which are the uh, nuclei of galaxies that contain supermassive black holes, which are sometimes a million, sometimes tens or hundreds of millions times the mass of the sun. Uh, and then also looking at things called X-ray binaries, which are binary star systems. But one of the stars in the binary system is a ordinary star, and the other one will be a black hole about the mass of the sun, maybe a few times the mass of the sun. Both these types of objects produce a lot of X-ray emission, and this new X-ray emission will be able to study that more carefully. So the other mission is a gravitational wave interferometer, these, this will be looking for gravitational waves, which are relatively difficult to detect phenomena, and it's very tricky to uh, actually get this type of radiation from anything. But one thing that will produce gravitational waves are binary pulsar systems, whereas the pulsars rotate around each other, they slowly lose kinetic energy, and that energy is radiated away in the form of gravitational waves, this uh, mission will be able to detect those gravitational waves. It's actually quite difficult to detect gravitational waves, isn't it? I mean, the the ground-based experiments that they have, like LIGO, they're sort of subject to Earth vibrations, and that's sort of things like earthquakes and trucks going by. That's something they have to sort of think about 
when they're doing their data analysis, but also well, they're sort of limited in size. I mean, I think I heard this mission, this potential mission that ESA is going to launch is it's basically three satellites or something in a big triangle shooting lasers at each other, and they're sort of five five million kilometers apart. I uh, unfortunately don't have any uh, information on that, but um, uh, the the exact size or configuration, and to some degree that may still be flexible. Uh, right now they just have funding to, uh, or or they've been given the go-ahead to uh, begin designing this mission, and uh, uh, based on my experience with previous missions, these missions can go through all sorts of redesigns. You could have new instruments added or instruments removed, or um, for all we know, they may want to paint the telescope a different color before it's launched. Imagine there's all sorts of design hurdles they have to overcome to actually build a build an instrument that will detect these things. So there'll, there'll oh, probably be some yes. really interesting spin-off technologies coming out of this. But one thing I did want to confirm, though, which you said, is that, yes, these gravitational waves are extremely difficult to detect. And wherever any gravitational-based experiment has been done on the Earth's surface, it's always been plagued by problems uh, from things like uh, just trucks going down the street, maybe, uh, you know, hundreds of meters away may set off the gravitational experiment and cause background noise or people walking around could potentially set it off. They are that sensitive. And so these types of experiments need to be put into space to actually work. My odder end is about the uh, Robonaut 2 that NASA has. They've got one currently sitting, well, currently doing things up on the space station. And R2 Robonaut 2, we've mentioned it a few times in the past. It's a robot a human-looking robot, but it's only a torso. And they attach it to things. They attach it to a post. They attach it to this little rover. I've actually seen a, a demo version of that at NASA. It was really cool. Um, it looks kind of like a slightly terrifying robot with a really scary, you know, metal helmet going on. But it's designed so that it can use all the same tools that a human can use. So it's got hands, it's got arms, and uh, now they're developing legs for it. This is why you were hesitant about saying it was sitting up in space, right? Yes. <laughs> Um, and yeah, now they're developing a pair of legs for it so that he can be, he can attach himself outside the space station, can move himself around. Um, and these legs that they're developing have a leg span of nine feet. So those are some really long legs. This will give it flexibility for moving around the space station. And apparently each leg has seven joints. And instead of feet, they've got something called an end effector, which allows the robot to take advantage of handrails and sockets and attach itself to them inside and outside the station. So its feet actually work like monkey feet rather than like human feet. Yeah, They, they can of. actually grab things. Yeah. Yep. And uh, it looks pretty awesome. Also kind of weird because there's seven joints in the legs. But, I mean, it's, it's designed so that it can free up uh, astronauts' time so that they don't have to do regular repetitive tasks and they can concentrate on other things. So it's designed to sort of replace humans in a way. That's that's quite scary. I mean, somewhat, yes. A lot of sci-fi films I've seen tells us that's not a good idea. <laughs> well, on the other hand, if you look at a lot of the missions have been done to uh, uh, other planets, they've all uh, been fully automated. So I mean, this just makes sense to have more fully automated uh, mechanisms in space. And I mean, it's it's designed so that it can work outside in zero g where humans would need a spacesuit and obviously there are dangers to that and if you can send the robot out to do it that's kind of cool it sounds actually like they're they're developing its um 
kind of hands and feet and whatever else it gets to be quite versatile in what it can do. So I, I imagine that'd be quite a, yeah. an advantage in interesting environments like Mars or something where you want to do exactly weird things with geology. <laughs> and also, it's not the only robotic technology that NASA's currently developing. They're also um, developing things like a robotic exoskeleton, which will help astronauts stay healthier in space, and it can also help with uh, help people with disabilities as well, apparently. Okay, my odd and end this episode is about the Chinese Chang'e 3 mission, which is a lunar mission to put a lander on the moon, and it's their first landing lunar mission. Um, it's named after the... It's got a lovely name. Chang'e is the... Uh, I hope I pronounced that right. Is the, is the Chinese moon goddess. And uh, the lander they've called Yutu, which is Jade Rabbit. And in, in Chinese mythology, it's the... It's the companion of the moon goddess. So it's quite a nice, it's a nice link from uh, sort of old mythology into high tech science that we're putting on the moon. It's nice to kind of we're telling our own stories now in the way of. It sounds warm and fuzzy. Yeah. So um, Jade Rabbit is going to study the lunar surface topography and the geology, and particularly they'll be sort of probing into the the crust and the lunar soil. So they'll be studying the structure and depth of the lunar soil to a depth of something like thirty meters and. They'll be going much deeper with some some probes to uh, look at the actual structure of the lunar crust. So there'll be some interesting results from that, I think. So this is an entirely automated mission? It's China's first soft landing and roving exploration mission, so that I don't know if they'll be controlling it from the ground or whether it'll be automated. But it's not manned, like there's no people going to be on the spaceship and then getting out and wandering around on the moon? No. Do. no. Okay. It, so it's an unmanned mission. That would be pretty big news if it was. Well, yeah, I assume so. I just wanted to check. <laughs> what were the first two Chinese missions to the moon? Well, there was Chang'e 1 and 2, and they were simply orbital experiments. Oh. Um, so they, I think there's a whole kind of range of missions they're planning to the moon, which, uh, so 1 and 2, I think, were putting something in orbit, and 3 and 4, I think, are landing missions. And then further missions will attempt sample return. So actually going to try and bring stuff back. And now, Professor Tim O'Brien will dig into your questions in this month's Ask an Astronomer. Our first question comes from Russ Jenkins, who asks, If neutrinos are the up-and-coming frontier in observations, will it one day be possible to use them to observe further back in time than the CMB, as the early universe was presumably transparent to neutrinos long before becoming transparent to photons? Okay, yeah, so a bit of context to this. Um, Nearly everything we know about the universe um, we discover through picking up different forms of electromagnetic radiation, so visible light, X-rays, radio waves, and so on. Um, and of course, one of the challenges in astronomy is we can't easily go to these distant things and study them close up, so we're reliant on everything that arrives at the Earth to understand it. So, yeah, we do all that electromagnetic radiation, but there are other things that we could pick up from space. Maybe in the future, gravitational waves. We'd, we'd love to be able to use those to study the universe. Um, but also particles. Um, cosmic rays are particles that come from um, the sun and other exotic objects in distant space, supernovae and active galaxies and so on. Um, but neutrinos uh, are a particular type of uh, fundamental particle that are very interesting but extremely hard to detect. Um, they basically interact very weakly with matter, which means you basically just can't catch them in a camera like you can very easily with photons. So extremely hard to, to do. Um, but it is now possible to do it. Particle physicists have big neutrino detectors. Um, so, for example, we there's a long-standing problem in 
in uh, astrophysics was how whether we understood how the sun worked because the um, the theories of the nuclear reactions at the heart of the sun predicted a certain uh, amount of neutrinos being produced and we were basically not measuring the correct amount at the earth so um uh, we, we late, we discovered not that long ago really, uh, that in fact it's because neutrinos change type. There's different flavours of neutrinos. Uh, and when they change from one to the other, uh, it turns out that we were, because there were three types that were, we were aware of at the time, um, then, uh, it meant that the numbers you observed were a third of what you expected because they sort of changed from the original type into these two others as well. So you had a third of each type and that was why the, uh, these things didn't agree. So in the end, with that experiment, we showed that the astrophysics of the sun was right, and we showed that the uh, uh, particle physics was was right too. Now, this question is about neutrinos and the Big Bang, uh, and the cosmic microwave background. Uh, Russ is right to say that the uh, when we look at the the uh, the Big Bang with with electromagnetic radiation, uh, what we see is this cosmic microwave background, these microwave wavelength photons um, that that were. Uh, come from the time at which the universe first became transparent to photons, um, which was about 380,000 years after the Big Bang, so almost almost 14 billion years ago. Uh, and we see that and we map that structure with, with spacecraft like the Planck spacecraft most recently. Um, and he's absolutely right that the problem with that is that, that that's as far back in time as you can see with the photons because before that time the universe was opaque denser and it was hotter and it was opaque to the lights so you can't see through that sort of barrier if you like but neutrinos um, are different and the and the universe became transparent to neutrinos probably only a few seconds after the big bang rather than 380,000 years after the big bang and so in principle if you could detect this those uh, afterglow neutrinos or relic neutrinos or whatever you want to call them that come from the big bang you could study those earlier phases now the problem with it is what I said at the beginning was the neutrinos are hard to detect. These ones are also very low energy, in fact, so they're even harder to detect than other types of neutrino. Um, but interestingly, uh, it is possible to calculate the effects that those neutrinos would have on the development of the structure of the matter that we then see in the cosmic microwave background maps. So we're, we're measuring the details in the cosmic microwave background map of, of microwave radiation, like with Planck, um, and the structures you see are affected by the flux of neutrinos and the ripples in the neutrino flux. So although you don't see the neutrinos directly, you see their effects on these on these structures, and that has been done. Um, and also for Planck in particular, for example, Planck appears to have confirmed that there are only three types of neutrinos, which might disappoint some particle physicists who wanted more, but they seem only to be three. And also they can you can use those observations to put limits on the mass of the neutrino. Because um, it used to be thought the neutrinos were massless, but because they change flavour between these these three types, that that tells you they must have some mass, and you're able to actually work out what the the upper limit on the on the mass of a of a neutrino. It's actually um, you know, two million times less massive than an electron. <laughs> They're not very massive, but but we know they do have some mass, not very much, and you can measure it from these CMB cosmic micro background observations. Our next question comes from Jerome Tremblay, who asks, One question I got from a 10-year-old is, what is quantum physics? How can you go about explaining the concept of that? Yeah, it's a funny funny word, I suppose, quantum physics. It basically means uh, a very small amount of something. A quantum is a small amount of something. Um, and it basically goes right back to the uh, end of the 19th century, beginning of the 20th century. And I suppose at the end of the 19th century, most people um, thought that physics was solved. 
Um, they thought they'd worked out, for example, the great, the great story of the 19th century was the story of the electromagnetic spectrum, actually, I think. Um, because right at the beginning, in 1800, William Herschel discovered infrared. So this was the first type of light beyond the visible. Um, the year after uh, ultraviolet was discovered. And then basically all the other bits of the electromagnetic spectrum were filled in. Um, right the way to the end of the, that century, in 1900, when Villard discovered gamma rays. Uh, and in the middle of that, James Clark Maxwell worked out that these things were all electromagnetic waves moving at the speed of light. So that's that was all very exciting. And pe- a lot of people thought, well, you know, we understand physics now. Uh, and there were just some little little problems they hadn't quite worked out. And one of those was related to um, the type of spectrum you get from uh, a hot, opaque object. So it's, we call it a black body in physics, but, you, you know, something like the sun, which is opaque, you can't see directly through the sun. Um, a hot thing produces a spectrum that sort of rises and falls as you work your way through the different wavelengths or colours. And we couldn't, we couldn't calculate, physicists at the time could not predict the shape of that spectrum given the theories that they had. And it was actually Max Planck who was the first person to suggest, um, and rather than, um, it, it basically being, uh, this sort of continuous thing, he suggested that in fact it came in, uh, packets in these small quanta. Or, um, which is the plural of quantum. Um, and basically from that point, all the people that, that you might have heard of, so people like um, uh, Einstein, people like um, Rutherford, people like Niels Bohr, all these people picked up on that idea. And that was when quantum physics was born, was the idea that energy doesn't come in any old values. It comes in these packets. Um, and Bohr, for example, worked out a quantum theory of the atom, of the hydrogen atom that explained... Um, the spectral lines, the dark lines that we see in the spectrum of the sun, call them the Fraunhofer lines that are caused by the absorption of light um, by atoms or molecules in the in the outer atmospheres of stars. Um, so basically, that's it. I mean, you know, the simple idea, the simple fundamental thing about quantum physics is that it's about not having a continuous range of something, energy in this case, but but that coming in packets. And I suppose, um, you know, we talk about photons of light. Before that point, they wouldn't really have talked about photons of light because they'd have talked about them as waves. Um, and that, that then turned to these packets of energy that we, that we call photons. Um, and all these sorts of theories that have come since then in particle physics, so, um, quantum electrodynamics and quantum chromodynamics and string theory and all these things. These, these are all quantum field theories that are all about sort of, um, using these quantum principles in order to understand uh, the world around us, and it certainly seems to seems to be that way. And we need quantum uh, quantum physics to explain the world. Uh, the big hole in that at the moment is probably a quantum theory of gravity, uh, because we don't have a, uh, a successful one of those which combines with the others, which would effectively give us this sort of much vaunted theory of everything. Um, whether that's possible or not, I'm not sure. But the closest we have at the moment is superstring theory, and that's not yet been not yet been proved. Yeah, I know there's there's um, a method of kind of unifying the three mm. major theories, but still not gravity, and it's still yeah something that people yeah, well, really want to have. It's something that Einstein spent uh, after he'd done these amazing achievements in special relativity and and general relativity. And just by the way, next uh, 2015 is the hundredth anniversary of general relativity, so we're coming up to that now, the last hundred years. But he spent most of the rest of his life trying to do that very thing, unify those. Uh, those theories and, and didn't achieve it, even someone who was obviously as, as brilliant as Einstein. So it's not an easy task. No, not at all. Our next question comes from Paul Saxon, who asks, 
In August 1977, Ohio State University's radio telescope received the now-famous WOW signal. Um, unfortunately, the signal has never been detected again. Has the Mark I telescope ever checked the location of the WOW signal in the constellation of Sagittarius? And are there any plans to do some SETI research, such as scanning the Kepler exoplanets for any signs of extraterrestrial intelligence? So kind of two questions there. <laughs> and he added, thanks for a brilliant podcast, I he noticed. He did, he did. <laughs> <laughs> so thanks, thanks for that, Paul. Um, so yeah, the WOW signal is, is you know, it's, it's well known in sort of SETI work, the search for extraterrestrial intelligence. And uh, it was basically uh, an observation that was made with a, with a radio telescope in Ohio, as he mentions. Uh, and they were looking for... Um, these sorts of uh, signals that might possibly have come from extraterrestrials. And they were measuring the strength of the signals as, as time goes by. Um, and the classic printout of this that you'll find on the web if you Google wow signal um, is a series of n numbers uh, which basically represent the brightness of the radio signal. So it's basically printing out the, printing out the brightness on a, on a, on a print chart printout at the time. Um, and then all of a sudden, within all this series of sort of ones and twos and things, which are low, low level signals, faint signals, there's this sequence of, uh, numbers and letters. It goes six EQUJ5. What on earth does that mean? <laughs> so, so if you could imagine they, uh, they were, they were scaling the brightness just with, uh, numbers. So two would be brighter than one, three would be brighter than two and so on. But then we ran out of those sing single digit numbers. They went on to letters. And so, so when this goes six E Q U J five, what's happening is that it's going, brightness is going up and up and up and peaking at around U by the look of it and then falling back down again. And so this was basically a bright, um, radio source, uh, passing through the beam of that radio telescope. Um, and this was re really, you know, you know, very bright around the, near the wavelength of the, the hydrogen line in the, in the uh, in the radio spectrum at uh, around a wavelength of 21 centimeters, which has been suggested as a place where you might look um, for for alien signals, because it's such, it's the most abundant element in the universe. And if you're going to search the spectrum, you might look for these special places in the spectrum. You might define that as a a special place. Of course, we don't know what the extraterrestrials would be transmitting or where they would be doing it if indeed they exist at all. Um, but that's at least a starting point. So this was discovered and this was suggested, oh, you know, you know, this was an interesting signal. Was this, was this an extraterrestrial signal? And of course, the problem is people have gone back. Um, they, they themselves went back, of course, and reobserved that, that location and nothing. And numbers of other people have gone back and reobserved that location and got nothing. So it's literally just been observed that one time. It was just observed that one time and it lasted. It, it was a signal that lasted for about a minute or so, I think, in the. So quite a significant data. length of time. Yeah. Yeah. So it was a. But you know the, the the trouble was what what was it something coming from 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 space? It seemed to have the properties of something coming from space rather than something that was local interference. But uh, but if you can't observe it again, it's very hard to to make progress. Um, now Paul asked, have we has the Mark One telescope at Jodrell um, ever checked the location of the Wow signal? For those who are wondering what the Mark One telescope is, um, it was it was the original name for the what we now call the Lovell telescope. So it was called that from 1957 to 1971. 1971, it got a new surface built on top of the old one. And so we called it the Mark 1A. And in 1987, on its 30th anniversary, it was renamed the Lovell Telescope in honour of Sir Bernard um, Lovell, obviously, who started the observatory. Uh, it's had another surface since then as well, but we didn't bother to rename it on that occasion. Just kept the same just name. Just kept the same name and just had another, another nice, shiny, lovely paraboloidal dish, better than the one before. 
Um, so I don't think we have. I don't know that we did. I have actually tried to look for signals from that direction of whale signals. Quite a lot of other people have. So I'm not sure that we, you know, we would particularly have been any benefit in us us doing that. Um, in terms of doing um, uh, SETI programs, uh, we the the major SETI search that we were involved with at Jodrell was the Project Phoenix search, um, and that was run by the SETI Institute in California. What's the Project Phoenix? It's, search? It, it, so what they did was the 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 clever thing about Project Phoenix. Again, it's a radio SETI, so it's looking at radio signals from uh, potential extraterrestrial civilizations. Uh, picked about a thousand nearby stars uh, and went through them one at a time. Uh, and the clever thing was that we used two two telescopes. So for the part where Jodrell was involved, this was 1998 to 2003, uh, over that five years, uh, we did this uh, for a few weeks at a time, several times a year. Um, two telescopes, one was Arecibo in Puerto Rico, which is the world's biggest telescope, uh, but so big you can't actually steer it, so it points pretty much straight up, um, and the Lovell telescope at Jodrell. Uh, and they both look simultaneously at the same star, the same direction to one of these nearby stars, sun-like stars. Um, and uh, the trick for using two telescopes is basically there's t- two good reasons for doing it. One is that um, if you are going to be confused by interference um, that humans are producing, wherever it might be from, satellites or mobile phones or whatever, um, which would be artificial signals, easily distinguishable from natural radio signals by the by the way in which they spread in the spectrum. Um, if you use two telescopes that are separated, then you wouldn't expect to see the signal that you're detecting one uh, in the other telescope, you know, because the distance is large enough. Um, and the other clever reason about that is that actually, if you measure uh, a narrow band signal, a sort of spike in the radio spectrum, you can measure the frequency at which it appears. Um, and uh, because these two telescopes are on different parts of the Earth's surface and the Earth is spinning, when you look in a particular direction, you get a different Doppler shift because the speed at which the, uh, the telescope is moving relative to the object is different for the two different telescopes. And so, in fact, that signal, if it were indeed coming from space, uh, would appear at a slightly different frequency in the spectrum. And so that would be another great great pointer to it coming from outer space. And, of course, for that reason, the 1,000 stars didn't detect any alien signals. Um we are. We haven't done any SETI since then, but we just we just started to do a new SETI project actually at Jodrell. Um, so What's we are. Uh, it doesn't have a name. We should give it a name. <laughs> mm, should have a competition in the job. No, maybe I don't know. So we, we, we've um, we've actually decided we, we're going to try and look at. I suppose you know thinking about the motivation for this, we don't know whether aliens exist. We might be the only life in the whole universe. Most people think that's probably unlikely. We certainly know there are billions of planets, even in our own galaxy, probably billions of habitable planets in terms of being similar to the Earth in terms of the temperature. You know, we don't know whether aliens are on them or not. We don't know whether they'd be transmitting radio signals. But if they are and we don't bother looking, that would probably a bit, be a bit remiss of us, I think. Yeah, I agree. <laughs> so, the, so we felt that it would be quite a nice thing to do. Problem with it is, you, if you don't know there's a signal there, if you, if you used up your telescope time continually on that, you, we could be there for the next 300 years or something, never detecting a signal, wasting all that telescope time because we've not done anything with it. So the trick is to try and get a system going that would effectively piggybacks on our on other observations or perhaps uses a limited amount of observing time. 
Um, and we're looking into that process. The, the, the technology we have now with, with e-Merlin, it's a network of up to seven radio telescopes across the UK, uh, really lends itself to these sorts of SETI programs because it has a very wide bandwidth of spectrum. So we can see a huge range of different frequencies. And since we don't know where the aliens are transmitting, you have to look across a wide band. And we can also break that, that band down into very fine detail. And so we can then search for these narrow band signals, which many people argue is probably what we, we, we would be, we should be looking for. Um, so that's what we're doing at the moment. Hopefully there'll be some more, uh, news about, uh, the details of that over the, the next, uh, coming months. Okay. Well, that's something to definitely look out for. And our last question comes from Peter Conway, who asks, if the tides are caused by the gravity of the moon, why is there a high tide on the side of the Earth furthest from the moon? Okay, so well, it's, a, it's a question that's often asked. Um, and uh, and I suppose the one, one problem is thinking about everything as though there's a sort of, you know, an, an Earth and a moon attached to some sort of rod that holds them fixed. And you imagine the gravity of the moon pulling the water uh, over the earth, if you like, towards the moon. And then if you thought it was like that, then you would indeed expect to see a single bulge on the side of the, uh, the earth facing the moon because all the water would be pulled more towards the moon. Um, but in fact, it's not, that's not a fixed situation like that. You've got this rotating system. Um, and if you imagine the force of gravity on different objects across the earth, then you've got, um, the greatest force of gravity on the side facing the moon. You've got a sort of medium force of gravity in the middle of the Earth, if you like, and the least force of gravity on the far side. And if you can imagine a situation like that, it means the water on the far side of the Earth is pulled less towards the moon than everything in the, in the sort of middle of the Earth is pulled towards the moon. So in effect, what you end up with is a body of water that's sort of stretched out in an egg-like way, if you like, and the Earth sort of sitting more or less in the middle of that. And it's basically because of the differences in gravity across that whole surface. So you've got the bit that's pulled towards you more produces the bulge on one side. The bulge on the far side of the Earth is actually because that water's pulled less towards the moon than even the Earth itself is in between. So I hope that makes some sense in a yep. fairly quick answer to the, that makes to the question. That sense. <laughs> okay. Thank you very much. And if you have any questions that you want answering, then send them in via all the usual channels. Thanks for that, Tim and Christina. And now on to feedback. So this week we don't have any posts. Sad face. <laughs> But we have been sent a lot of questions for Ask an Astronomer through email, so thanks for those. Also, thank you for all these shares and likes on Facebook. And on Twitter, we've had a lot of responses to our last episode being better than Mince Pies. Uh, Mince Pie Monitor says, surely you meant to say at least as enjoyable as a mince pie. And Pete Lee, who says, I'm sure it's great as always, but come on, mince pies. And I've got to say, I think it's better than a mince pie, but I'm not a big fan of mince maybe, pies. So. Maybe with a mince pie. If you're if you're eating mince pie while you're listening to this, good on you. That's probably better than either just listening to a Jodcast or eating a mince pie, is it's... to do both activities simultaneously. There's no conflict there. Let's get along, people. <laughs> and thanks to everybody else for the tweets, retweets, and follow Fridays that we've had. And if you want to get in touch, you can do so via the website at www.jodcast.net. On Twitter at twitter.com slash jodcast. On Facebook at facebook.com slash jodcast. On YouTube at youtube.com slash jodcast. On Flickr at flickr.com slash groups slash jodcast. And don't forget that you can send us posts and the address is on the website.
Well, thanks to Mike Keith and Jonathan Pritchard for the interviews, Dave Alt for writing the panto, the editors were Adam Avison, George Bendo, Tim O'Brien, and Christina Smith. The producer was Christina Smith. Until next time, jot on. Hello? I'm looking for an editor. No editors here. Gosh, no. Morty? Don't mind if I do. Hang on. Are you the Mad Adam and the Mark Hare? I wouldn't know. I don't even know at the time, half the time. You mustn't put butter in the atomic clocks. It ruins them, you know. Cholesterol? How dare you. Could I... could I just ask... No room! What do you mean? There's plenty of room. Pan round! Pan round! Why is the Jodcast like a writing desk? I don't know. Why is the Jodcast like a writing desk? What did you say? Oh, not this again. I knew it. She's mad. We might have to send her to the... Forum. With the old producers. What do you mean? Oh no, the Queen. The Queen? Why is the job gas late? It wasn't us, Your Highness. I'm not even here, Your Majesty. Where is she? Where's the person who's supposed to be in charge? Do, do you mean... Me? Yes! Where is the John cast? Off your head! Consider, my dear, she's only a child. Oh, now I know how Jen felt. Well, where is it? It's a lot of work. We, we know. know. No, you don't. Oh, yes, we do. No, you don't. Oh, yes, we do. Oh, yes, so you do. Off with her head! Well, maybe you're right. Off with her head! I'd run if I were you. I'd run away. Which way? What way? Oh, you again? Every time. Come along, it's late. Come along. But, but... Come on, Indy, wake up. It's going to be late. What? Huh. Now I see why the jog cast's not been getting out on time. Ah, what? Oh, don't mind me, I'm just here for the jam tarts. I'm going now. Never met him. Now come on, get the show uploaded.